morning. Is everybody out of breath? <laughs> Yoni just said, I am. I love Chris Tomlin. My kids love that song. Well, if you have your Bibles, turn in them to 2 Peter. We're going to be looking at chapter 1, verses 3 through 15. Let me wish all of you a happy new year. Be safe tonight. That means stay home. (laughs) Stay indoors. I would be remiss to end this year without reminding the church of our verses for the year. And to take some time looking at these, ver- this, these particular verses of ours within their context and how they should shape our mindset going forward. I wonder sometimes if we have the right criteria in our minds for judging whether or not a person is truly a Christian. Now, some of you may say, well, that's not really our concern. Sometimes it is. Sometimes it is. It is especially our concern when we are considering who we should be around and associating with, since the word tells us what business does light have with darkness. So we especially want to be concerned about whether or not a person is truly a Christian. If they are darkness, we don't want to associate them with them the way we would associate with light. The only job that light has with darkness is that it's supposed to eviscerate Darkness. Light comes into darkness, it destroys it. We should be concerned when we talk about members of our church so that we are bringing into our fellowship, into our close-knit quarters, into our, our body, a group of people who really believe and confess the same things we believe and confess. The New Testament, in many, many places exhorts churches to be on the lookout for false teachers and false prophets. Those who profess an unorthodox belief and who live an unorthodox life. And so, while we aren't to run around and say, I know for certain that Bobby and Susie is or is not a Christian, we are to be as Johan has said before, fruit inspectors. Now, before you eat an apple, I hope you look at that thing. I hope you rinse it off, too. As one comedian says, I hope you rinse off that sticker that Al-Qaeda put on it. But you look at your apple before you eat it. You want to make sure that it doesn't have bad parts in it. I was always concerned about that. I remember one time I took an apple down to my father, and I I was young. I said, Dad, I don't know. Is this apple good to eat? And I handed it to him, and he took a look at it. It's fine, and handed it back to me. We are to know, though, before we eat it, we are to inspect it. We need to be inspectors. 
How, how would you know, though, whether or not a person is a Christian? What is the criteria by which you would judge a person as either a Christian or not a Christian? Now, again, I'm using the word judge as in, okay, if a person steals, they're a thief. No, you can't judge them. No, even if they stole for virtuous reasons, they're still a thief. I don't need, that, that is the dictionary definition. Yeah, but that's not nice. That's going to hurt their feelings. But listen to me. They are a thief by definition. Today, our society is afraid of definitions. We live in a postmodern culture. Definitions put an absolute meaning to words. And postmodernism is characterized by deconstructionism, which is the attitude of taking to a text, going to a text and saying, I, we, I the reader, impose my meaning on the words rather than letting the author speak to me. A word means to me this. It may mean to you that, but it means to me this. And there is no definite meaning to these words. And we have to know the criteria by which we will judge not only others, but by which we will scrutinize ourselves. You are not to live a life in morbid, of morbid, morbid introspection, but you are, you are to scrutinize your life and Ask whether or not your life reflects Christ. How do we know if a person, even ourselves, especially ourselves, is truly a Christian? Everyone in South Florida is a Christian, right? Everyone. Everyone you ask, they tell you they're a Christian, don't they? Yeah, I'm a Christian, sure. You know that's not true. You've been in rush hour traffic. And you know Christians don't drive like that. You know, you know that. But we give a name to something, we give a title to something, and that should not impress true believers, the word Christian, without some kind of evidence behind it. And by the way, even lost people know that. Even lost people are looking at your life to see whether or not you've got evidence to back up what you say about yourself and what you say about your God. They are watching you. This is obvious, believer. That a Christian must be characterized by two things. Orthodoxy and orthopraxy. That is right belief and right practice. And someone would say, well, how do we know what is right? At this church, in the confessing church of 2,000 years of professed, we know by the word of God. When Peter reminded the church of these Christian qualities... He said at the end of this section, and I will make every effort so that after my departure, speaking of death, by the way, you may be able at any time to recall these things. What is he talking about? 
He's talking about taking his teachings and putting it into writing. So that God's words now become our constitution, which dictate what we as Christians are to believe and how we are to live our lives. We don't have a right, in other words, to go to the word of God and say, I don't like that. I'm going to change it. I don't like that. I'm not going to do it. The word of God is absolute. It is the final rule in all matters of faith and practice. In the court of law, a lawyer will stand before a judge and argue that something is unlawful or is lawful based upon a standard. And that standard is a law that ultimately finds its grounding in the U.S. Constitution. It doesn't matter what the president says or what Congress says. If they do something that is unconstitutional, that is against the document, we may deem them as a rogue government. It's very simple. I know that Harry S. Truman put a sign on the front of his desk in the Oval Office that said the buck stops here, but the buck stops at the Constitution. His job is to be the commander-in-chief of the Constitution to enforce it. So we have a standard. A standard by which we say whether a person is or not, is or isn't obeying the law. That's in, the, in, in America and in every other country that has a Constitution. And in the church, we have a standard. Girls, the boy who's telling you he's a believer... You can know whether he is or he isn't. Here's the standard. Boys, the girl who tells you she's a Christian, you have a standard. Does my boyfriend or girlfriend live by this standard? Then they're not a Christian. Do they believe according to this? Do they obey according to this? Then they're not. And you don't have to wonder. God is not torturous. He hasn't left us in the dark. He's given us his word. We just fail to recognize it. We have left it on the side and we have forgotten what the truths of scripture are. And for that reason, because that is always, and it's not just it's not just our generation. That has always, always been an issue for the, church, for the church of Jesus Christ, that Christians will forget the doctrines. For that reason, the purpose is to be frequently reminded of them. Frequently. I know the word of God pretty well. I study it Monday through Friday, Saturday and Sunday. I'm studying it all week. 
I'm reading books about it. I'm listening to lectures about it. I listen to sermons about it. I write sermons about it. I preach about it. My dad and I talk about it. My friends and I talk about it. And you would think, you would think that that type of inundation with anything would be enough. I don't need to go any further. But I need it just like you need it every single day. I need to be reminded of it. Why? Because I'm flesh and blood. Because in this time between the times, yes, I am saved. Yes, the Holy Spirit lives in me. I have not been glorified. And in this time between the times, there is a tension called already, but not yet. I'm already saved, but my salvation is not yet consummated. And in this time between the times, there is a tension. There is a, a, a need to rely on the word of God and to constantly force ourselves to obey it. To not play Russian roulette with our faith. I don't need to go to church. I know all that already. I had Sunday school. Listen to me. I know more about the Bible probably than you do. I need it just as much as you do. I don't say that to brag. I say that because if I know more about it and I need it just like you do, you can't come to me and say, I don't need it. You need it. Oh, but church is boring. Church is anything but boring when the word of God is being taught. It might be scary. As I read this passage this week and I scrutinized my life along this, I had a tendency to recoil in fear because I wasn't meeting the standard. Because I saw where I lacked discipline in my life. Church is anything but boring when the Bible is read and taken seriously. It ought to wretch your heart when you read the word of God. We live in a time of already but not yet. In verse 12 of our passage this morning, I'm going to give you the conclusion of our verses for the year. In just a moment, we're going to look at those verses of the year. But let me just read this passage. Peter says, therefore, so this is a conclusion indicator. He has reached the conclusion. Because these principles are true, here's the conclusion. He says, therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities. How often? Always. Oh, the pastor's always talking about sin. Always. When are you going to talk about nice things? Always I'm going to remind you of these qualities. You talked about that last week. And what have we done since then? Always. Until they throw dirt on the top of our casket. Always. Though you know them, he says, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have, 
In other words, you're established. You've, you've lived a life where there's good evidence that you're a believer. You go to Sunday school. At least 10% of our church goes to Sunday school. You tithe. You're consistent in church. You, you have tried to obey. So Peter says, you're established in this faith. There's some, there's some evidence there. But just because you're established in the faith does not mean you don't need to be reminded of these qualities. How often? Always. He says, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them. You know, you've heard the truths before. You know them, and you're even establishing them. You've lived by them. He says, I think it is right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up. That word stir up there, he means, it literally just means to wake you up. But to get the people of God agitated. You know what the word agitate means? Let me give you an example. You ever gone to your kitchen sink after the city has come in and they've done work on your plumbing and you turn on the, quish, uh, the, the kitchen sink? Did I say Christian sink? I don't have a Christian sink. Kitchen sink. And you turn it on and it goes, and it shoots out water and all of a sudden the water's brown. And you're like, oh no, I just filled up the Brita. And you weren't paying attention because one of your kids was jumping off the, off the couch. Maybe that's just me. And you look and your water's brown. You know why it's brown? Because they've been doing work on the pipes. They've agitated the sediment that has fallen to the bottom and rusted. And so it's, it's been agitated and it comes out. I want to agitate our people to the point of obedience. And that's what Peter wants. How does he plan on doing it though? How does he plan on agitating obedience from the people of God? Is it by a program? Is it by having a great, great song service? No. It's by what? Always reminding them of these qualities. And then he says this. Since I know that putting off my body will be soon, that is, he's going to die, he's going to be martyred, Church history tells us he was crucified upside down because he didn't deem it worthy to be crucified in the same manner as Christ. He says, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me, I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able to, at any time, recall these things. Because we sit here in 2017, about to be 2018. And we have the ability to read these words. We know that what Peter promised to these churches in Asia Minor has come true. We can be reminded of these words. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. But Lord, make the word active in our lives. Your word tells us to seek out our own salvation in fear and trembling, but it also tells us that it is you who works in us both to will and to act. And so we ask you, Lord, to will in us, to, to by your power, to will and to act in accordance with your truth.
And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm not done, brother. <laughs> Was it that good, Yoni? <laughs> Man, who's taping this? Where is the recorder this morning? Praise God, yes. Johan, we are going to be using that against you. Make sure David Reed is on speed dial. Um, we're going to be calling him ASAP. It's only 11.25. I'm just getting warmed up. I haven't even gotten to the first part. All I've been talking about are these little notes right here. Some of you are like, I got to go. I got a party tonight. Listen, you don't need to go nowhere but right here. Let's look at our passage. That was funny. I don't care who you are, that's funny. <clears throat> I love when church doesn't feel like a performance. You ever, you come to church, we're a family. We're a family. We're two, we're a family. And every once in a while, there, everybody's got that uncle who just comes up on stage when he thinks the pastor's done. Yoni is that uncle. <laughs> and I'm the dad who doesn't stop talking. Now, let's look at our passage in verse 3. This is, we start at verse 3. We're going to look at verses all the way through verse 11. We're going to focus in on our verse for the year. Okay? Verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. I titled this sermon, Be What You Already Are, based upon this passage, this first verse. Listen to what it says. His divine power has granted. The word for has granted is in the perfect tense. It is a past tense, which means it's completed. It's done. God has already granted to us what? Perfection? No. He's granted to us all things that pertain to life, specifically Christian life, and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. He's saying he has granted to us everything you need to live a godly life, to live a Christian life, to live a godly life. And what does that come through? It comes through the knowledge of God. It does not come through in inspirational speeches. It does not come through getting rich. It does not come through being social servants. It comes through the knowledge of him. You don't become saved apart from the preaching of the word. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. How will they hear unless someone preaches? And how will they preach unless they are sent? It is all by the word of God. And so if we're really going to live this Christian life, the only way to live it, according to Peter, is that we know the word of God. He has called us by his own glory and excellence, by which he has, again, granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. 
So now he's saying that through his glory, for his own concern, he has saved us. He has, through his promises, made them manifest in our lives. And that through these promises, he will make us partakers of the divine nature. That's a big phrase there. Partakers of the divine nature? And what most scholars believe is happening right there is that Peter is using a form of Hellenistic thinking, that is Greek thinking, where he is saying to them, you will, it's not that you will be God, it is that you will be like God. Holy. Christian, we're, we're going somewhere. There's a goal. The goal is to be, to receive the promises of God, and that through Christ, no work of our own, we may be like him. As Paul said, for we shall be like him. But it's not without escaping the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Then he says, for this very reason, Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they're, they're not complete. There's always room for growth. They keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. These, again, qualities come through that knowledge of God. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind. This is either a true believer who is just so far backslidden that there's not a single shred of evidence that they're saved, or it's somebody who says they're a believer and they're not. That's the only two options for this. They're either so backslidden that there's no shred of evidence that they're saved because they're living in sin, or they're not saved at all. And either one of those are uncomfortable situations to be in. He says here, having forgotten that you were cleansed, he was cleansed from his former sins. In other words, if you were cleansed from him, why do you look dirty again? Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. To confirm it. To show that it's real. How? If you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Here's the context of the passage. The context of the passage of 2 Peter is that the churches in Asia Minor were at the time being infiltrated by false prophets and false teachers. When you became a Christian, it's very likely that the person who led you to Christ gave you a, gave you a Bible. They gave you a Bible. How many of you received a Bible when you became saved? Three of you, four of you? Hey, let me tell you, if you didn't receive a Bible when you were saved, I hope you got one since then. 
I'm not joking. Because that is your constitution. That is your instruction booklet. It is what gives you life. It is what shows and proves to you who this Christ is that you claim to believe in. But in the early church, they didn't have the New Testament like we had them. Now we've got all kinds of Bibles. They didn't even have codex. This is a codex. It's a book. They didn't have books back then. The technology didn't exist. Now we've gone right past books and we've gone to digital format. We just look it up on PDF. We don't use codices anymore. They didn't have books like those. That was a much later date. It cost a lot of money to have books. But they eventually developed a type of paper on papyrus that they could write down some of these letters. And every Christian community more or less had a little chest where it was a sacred writing chest or a writings chest. And inside that chest, they would meet together in a home or in some place that they, they were able to meet. And they would open up that chest and there were writings in there. And they would read those writings whenever they met. That's how they knew as they were led to Christ, the, the apostles would come through to the church. They would preach to them the message by mouth. Most of them could not read and write in those days. And so they would, someone who could, would read that passage and they would know that that was authoritative. And what's going on here is that people are coming into the church and they're saying something that's different from what's been said already. But not only that, they're living differently than what has been said. They have a false orthodoxy and a false orthopraxy. Orthodoxy is right belief. Orthopraxy is right living. And these people who came in who said, yeah, we're Christians, were not living in correspondence with the true faith. They weren't teaching it. And so there were many of these. And 2 Peter, in fact, was a disputed book early on in the church, but only because they could not be certain that Peter was the author. And it was in 367 AD where Athanasius, Bishop of Alexandria, gives us his 39th Paschal letter, which is the first place in church history where we have the New Testament, according to the way that we have organized and ordered today. That's where first, that list first shows up. There were all kinds of lists. And it was Athanasius in the church, a very powerful leader in the church, but the church by and large at that point recognized that Peter would be accepted as a sacred inspired book. And the way that they knew it was not based upon the author's name, but based upon the rightness of his teaching. They said, hey, we may not be certain that this is Peter, but we know that if Peter lived, if Peter was alive and he could read this to us today, he would say, amen, this is right. This is right. This is what everyone else is saying. In fact, Paul made a very important point in Galatia when he said, it doesn't matter if even I or an angel from heaven were to come to you and teach you something, if it contradicts the word of God or the message that we have already proclaimed, 
Don't believe it. Because the orthodoxy and the orthopraxy are greater than even the name. And so 2 Peter is deemed to be an orthodox book because of that. But there were false prophets in those days. And these false prophets always, then and today, always tend in two directions. They tend in two extremes. They are either deniers of pleasure, and they teach that you should not enjoy pleasure in this life in any way. They are called ascetics. Or they are sensualist, and they indulge in all pleasure without control. In this particular instance, these false teachers, we don't know exactly what they're teaching, but they tend towards sexuality and uh, practicing all of the passion without self-control. And Peter says, listen, Christian, it's not this one, it's not that one, and it's not middle path, those who want to say that Christianity is somehow influenced by Eastern religion. It's not a middle path. It is the path that is based on a set of qualities that characterize God's people. Well, I want to take a look at these qualities as we have been studying. First off, we have to answer the question, what is this passage about? What is the point of this passage? The point of the passage is to remind these churches in Asia Minor to persevere in obedience to sound doctrine rather than in condemnation and destruction of false teachers. If we're going to live the Christian life, we have to follow those who follow God. What should we avoid in this passage? We should avoid making this passage simply a passage of do's and don'ts. Sometimes the, the Christian faith in the Bible gets minimized to a rule book. It's not a rule book. It is a book that answers the fundamental question of why there is anything, why there is a world, and why humans are in it. But it explains to us qualities that every Christian should have. And we should treat this passage as an exhortation to all of us to embody specific character traits that are consistent with the true knowledge of God, i.e., what we believe in our minds must be lived out in our lives. So what are these qualities? We've been saying them all year. I want to look at these qualities. The first quality that we have is that we must escape the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Specifically, Peter is saying any and every teaching and practice that goes against sound doctrine, we must run away from. We must escape it. Listen to me. Do not play fast and loose with the information that you receive do not say, it does not matter what is being given to me or this sounds good without checking to see whether or not it is consistent with the scriptures. Satan loves, loves, as my mother used to teach me, give an ounce of falsehood in an ocean of truth. 
Yeah, I know. I've listened to Oprah. She sounds really smart. She was talking about the spiritual center the other day. I was listening to her. She was on, um, what's this show? Uh, it used to be Regis and Kathy Lee, and now it's, you know, I don't know. And she was talking about the spiritual core. Spiritual core on every one of us. Scripture ever talk about spiritual core in every one of us? Huh? You must escape the corruption that is in the world. What is that corruption? It's not just all, it's not just sexual immorality, it's bad thinking. Let me tell you what scripture says about the core. It says about the core that it is deceitful and desperately wicked. And not even you can know your heart. Escape the corruption. That's corrupt teaching. And I like Oprah. I'm sure we'd have a fun time. You get a car. I'd be happy if I got a car. But it's wrong. And I don't want to pick on Oprah because you and I both have false teachings that we believe. And we can only escape that corruption by focusing on the truth of God. The second thing we have to do is we have to supplement our faith. Our faith must be backed up by action. All of us are talking right now. We are talking. January 2nd, we are going to be on the Stairmaster. Every one of us, right? We're going to lose weight this year. I, man, I, every year I tell my wife, this is the year. Washboard abs, honey. It's only backed up by action. What does it matter what you say? If you don't do it, everyone understands this. And so Peter, he says to us, not only do we have to escape these, but we have to supplement our faith. If you say you have it, if you say you're a Christian, well, live like it. Be what you are. Well, let's look at the list. He says, number one, supplement it with virtue. Supplement it with virtue. In other words, he means we must be people of moral integrity. Christians are characterized by moral integrity. But whose morality? Specifically, God's morality. The word of God. The world today has its own morality. Don't be fooled into thinking that the world is just wallowing in their immorality. They are trying to give their own sense of morality. And they are trying to pass it off as godly. One of the examples of this is the word tolerance. Tolerance today has come to mean acceptance. But the word tolerance simply means to put up with, though I disagree with something. The, the thing you must be in this world, in this day and age, is you must be tolerant, according to that definition. 
In other words, you must never say that what a person does is wrong. You must never say that that's right, that that's wrong. Every one of us has the right belief. Every one of us has our own belief, our own way of living. We can't say that one faith is wrong because that would be unkind. So you go off to your colleges and what do they have? Do they have as many of them used to have, as many of them were founded on Christian principles and a Bible and theology department? No. What do they have? A religious studies department. Why? Because we can't say that one faith is better than the other. That is the morality of our day. But listen to me, believer. Do not be swept up into that. Because you're escaping the corruption of the world, you're going to believe according to God's word. And we are required by, word, by the word of God to demolish every stronghold and every false teaching that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. We are to follow God's morality. Today, you can't say that a person is sexually immoral. They are to experiment. They are to embrace their sexuality and to let it run rampant. To experiment. That's the new morality. But that's not God's morality. God's morality is final for you and for every one of us. What else? It tells us that we're to supplement our virtue with knowledge. We must know what we believe and why we believe it. Many of us say we're Christian, but do you know what that means and why you even are? You are because you were taken here as a child. I, 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 that was me. My dad used to make me sit. I don't, some of you probably remember. I used to sit on that front row right there, drawing pictures, because I used to get in trouble over there. He'd get up every morning at 6.30 and beat on our door. Boys, it's time for church. We'd have to get up and go to church. And then one day I was sitting in my college classroom, and a professor began to talk about evolution. And he was given just fact after fact after fact after fact, and I had nothing for him. And I realized something. The faith I thought, I thought I had was nothing more than the faith of my parents. It wasn't mine. I didn't know why I believed what I said I believed. I had taken no time to study it. I thought it was just enough to show up on Sunday. But when the rubber hit the road, when I had to really defend my faith, I was mute. Nothing. But Peter says, you say you have faith? Supplement that with knowledge. Know the God you believe in. Do not see Sunday morning and Wednesday night this year. And I, I've already told the church, remember that this, this time right now is a time where we're taking these two weeks off. This is not a time to get lazy and sloppy spiritually. It is a time to rededicate ourselves to know God more fully. 
We meet on Wednesday nights. I don't know. Find a way to make it important to be here. You say, you're just saying that for your own self. I'm not. The Bible says, supplement your faith with knowledge. Not Netflix. Supplement your faith with knowledge. Our faith has a mental component to it. We cannot simply live off of emotions and feelings. Because feelings come and go. How many marriages end based upon, I no longer love him anymore. They're talking about a feeling. But you don't stay married. And this is not to pick on those who aren't married. I understand the complexity that we're dealing with. But I must preach the truth. The reason why we stay in our marriages is to reflect the unity of God. And the thing that should keep you going when times get tough is that you stood before God and assembled witnesses and made vows. Not how you feel. Now there is forgiveness for divorce. Praise God. There is forgiveness for all of our sins. But there might be someone right now who doesn't feel in love with their spouse anymore. You cannot base your commitments and your covenant commitments based upon feeling. There are going to be times where you're mad at God. You know why I hate the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel? Not simply because it's heresy, which it is, but because it's not true. Are you out of this thing when, when you don't become successful in your career? Is God your sugar daddy that, that when... When, when he's given to you, you're, you're there and you love him, but when he's not, you're gone? Is that what the basis of our relationship with God is on? What he can give us? What do we do when we don't get healthy? Job asked a very important question. He said, we have received good from God. Shall we not also receive evil? In other words, be realistic. God makes you no promises today that if you come to him, you're going to get successful. It might get worse. Because Satan is going to be patrolling you like he's never patrolled your life. But we don't supplement our faith with feeling. We supplement it with knowledge. And we know what? When those boys from Jerusalem, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego stood in a fiery furnace. They did not say, oh, we are certain that God is going to deliver us. What did they say? We know he is able. But if he shouldn't, we will not bow down and worship your gods. Their relationship with God was not based upon him getting their fannies out of the fire. It was based on a commitment, a covenant commitment to love God, and to know him, and to be faithful to him. But not only that, we're to supplement it with self-control. 
What is self-control? Self-control, we, we have to not be taken captive by things, even good things. This is the season of self-control. We're going to clean up all the messes that we've made in our lives over the past year and our lack of self-control. Turn on the TV, every commercial is about a diet or about a gym. This is the season of self-control. So we're going to go into the new year denying ourselves cookies and chocolates, soda and caffeine and wine, Netflix and television, less time with our hobbies, no more time with our hobbies, they're gone, more time with our families, all because we haven't controlled them in the first place. And then guess what? We don't keep up with it. After the first month, we can't keep up with it. Because we go from one extreme to the other. And that's what false teachers do. They either deny everything or they take everything without self-control. But Peter says, no, the truth is be self-controlled. Be self-controlled. Don't let whatever that thing is in your life master you. You master it. That is a Christian quality. And that can be even good things. Oh, I got to do my school. You might be mastered by your schoolwork. You might be mastered by your work and your occupation. But be self-controlled. Follow God's prescription. It is the best diet you will ever find. Self-control. Some think God is the, the big prude up in the sky. Oh, you're going to have sex? <clears throat> no sex. I'm going to create something called sex. It's going to be amazing, and I'm never going to let you have it. Sometimes it's how we push God off. He doesn't want us to have sex. He made, it, made this beautiful thing. But, by the way, just so you know, God made sex. We're not the first generation to think it up. And he's a prude, and he's going to take it away from us. No, that's not God. That's not what he does. He says it is a beautiful thing. It is so beautiful that it is to be preserved between you, one man, and you, one woman, in marriage. And there it is beautiful. And outside of it, it destroys your life. Abortions increase. Sexually transmitted diseases increase. Civil violence increases. How many times, police officers, are you called to a home where the husband and wife are fighting because there's some kind of infidelity that did not begin on a faithful commitment to Christ. It began from living immoral lives before they got married. Most murders in this country happen from two feet away. Why? Because it's happening from somebody they know. And most of the time, those are social and civil issues based upon a rogue sex life. Because God knows something about the sex life that the world is trying to lie to us about. It does matter. It is not, it is, listen to me, it is never just sex. Never. The two, the two have become one flesh. 
so that when they are not united anymore, it is equivalent to murder. And when we're going around becoming one flesh with these persons, one after another, God knows it's going to destroy you. Christian, God says, no, you can have things. You can have pleasures, but be self-controlled. God does not deny you these, but he does command self-control. Back up your self-control with steadfastness. Our faith must be grounded in the word and not in emotions. Steadfastness. We're with God because we believe his word, not because of the good things he's given us. Our faith must demonstrate, be demonstrated in godliness. I'm going in the wrong direction, sorry. By godliness. Our character must reflect God's character. Let me ask you, do you, do you look like God? Do you drive like Jesus? Do you? Susan, I'm looking at you. <laughs> she does not drive like Jesus. She drives like Satan. Seriously. It doesn't matter. Yes, it does. Because every time you cut that person off, they're pulling into the same church you are. This morning... Stephanie and I were driving, and I was in a hurry to get here, and, and I don't drive like Jesus, I'm telling you, and, and I've been convicted by this. You know what happens when people don't drive like Jesus? They get shot in this city. They get into car wrecks. You say, you are really being heavy-handed on that. I'm just telling you the truth. If people obeyed the speed limit and were courteous, and were caring about others on the road, they wouldn't get behind that, they wouldn't get behind that wheel drunk off of their butt. And that's what they're going to do tonight. All over this city. This morning we were driving and there was this, there was this car. And I said, oh, I said to Stephanie, they got to be Christians. Look how slow they're driving. <laughs> I said, I said, I'm going to get behind them. I can't cut them off because if I do, it's going to be the members of our church. And then I'm going to look bad as the pastor. We were joking about that. Do you drive like Jesus? Do you parent like Jesus would parent if he had children? I don't always. Do you give your money away that God gives good gifts? Do you forgive others the way God has forgiven you? Our character is to reflect God's character. Not only that, but we are to have brotherly affection. We must love one another selflessly and for their good in Christ. And above all, we must love like God loved us in Christ. I want to leave you with this passage. I know it's not found from Luke, but it's very interesting that in the very end of this particular book, Luke commends all of the writings of Paul as God's sacred scripture. 2 Peter 3.15 I want to read to you this passage from Philippians chapter 2. As we leave thinking about how we are to live. Listen to what Paul says. 
If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in spirit, in the spirit, any affection and sympathy. In other words, if you are a, if you are a real Christian, if you're my brother, Paul's saying to the church, if you're really my brother and my sister in Christ, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is love. When Peter says, supplement your faith with virtue, the ultimate of that is love. It is selflessness. It is living for God and others. It is an other-directed existence, an existence that does not focus on the self, but on others. And as Peter says, if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful Christians. Let these be our qualities, the qualities of the Northwest Baptist Church. Let's pray. Father, it is impossible to live the Christian life without your Spirit's help. And so we ask your Spirit to help us. Lord, there are people here today who say they're Christian, but are so far backslidden that there are no evidences that they are saved. I pray that this day, they would give evidences, would live these qualities out, so that they might make their calling and election certain. That they would understand this morning that they don't have to live in doubt, but that by living in obedience, they can have assurance that they are saved. Not because of their works, but because they are saved, they will work. Lord, there are some this morning who are deceived, and they think they're saved, but they're not. They've come here this morning in obedience of a mother or father or friend, but they have not taken seriously the knowledge of Christ. And it is my prayer this morning that whoever that person is will not leave here today without making a commitment to follow you. Lord, I ask that you would send that person to me or to one of the leaders in our church that we might lead them to Christ this morning. And it is my prayer, Lord, that you protect this church from being ineffective and unfruitful. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.